The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. The Week Trending, we're joined by Breda Brown, who is co-founder of Unique Media and chair of the Irish Writers' Centre, and by Owen Tomás McDermott, Managing Director of the Communications Clinic. Let's start with Lizzo. Uh, we're going to hear a bit of audio from one of those who have made allegations against Lizzo of harassment. But Breda, can you give us the background to what's going on here, please? So you might know Lizzo. She's a an American rapper and singer. Probably most people under the age of, uh, of uh, 30 might recognise exactly who she is. But she's well known for her body positivity, body confidence. She's quite a, um, a plus size uh, individual. Um, so she always comes out about talking about body positivity all the time and really speaks out against body shaming. But three of her former tour dancers have now levelled allegations of sexual harassment against her. Uh, sexual harassment, racial harassment and religious harassment and in one case had also mentioned weight gain to one of the dancers which really goes against everything she probably stands for. Okay, let's hear a little bit of one of those who's made the accusations, Ariana Davis. She told Channel 4 that the star's activism is performative. People that work for her for a short period of time may not see this because first impressions are always like over over um, acted and especially if there's cameras around that's why our first impression on the on the tv show that we filmed was very you know it was all sunshine and rainbows but once the cameras went away and once we've been with her for a while it slowly and like deeply declined it does hurt more it does hurt more and um because i do look up to her or I did look up, I, I look up to the fact that she was using her platform to um, address issues that other um, artists weren't, weren't doing. But knowing her now, um, it was performative. Performative. How has she defended herself, Lizzo Owen? Yeah, Lizzo has obviously denied it and has come out um, pretty strongly in the n- denial of it. When you go through her statement, it's interesting to, to read it. Uh, she refers to the stories as sensationalised, so she's not necessarily denying that the action actually happened. She is diminishing the significance of it. So that's the, the first element within it. Also, she refers to herself not as the victim, but when you read the statement, it is clearly that she is positioning herself as the victim. Also, with within it she talks about her high standards her passion her hard work which again given that she is saying she has such such high standards and is so passionate and loves hard work so much is again inferring that the three three dancers don't maintain the same work ethic as her so one of the, for example the accusations against was in relation to arduous and excruciating 12 hour auditions and rehearsals that they found very difficult to keep up with the statement obviously the target audience we would have to say are her fans what will keep Lizzo going are people turning up to her gig and uh, listening to her music. We have seen other artists struggling after such accusations put against her. So the question on whether or not this statement will will satisfy her fans' need is up for debate. Again, given that the the accusers are uh, doing interviews and I think we're on CNN in response to the denial is certainly going to be challenging for her. One of the issues is, as we have heard there, is the performative element of it. And often we think that celebrities can be tremendous human beings all of the time. 
And there's that kind of public versus private piece. The difficulty for Lizzo is, as Brida was talking about, is the positioning herself as this kind of woke angel. And now that woke angel has fallen from heaven with quite a thud. And that element of the hypocrisy is mm. the challenge where we're seeing it. And we would have seen a similar situation with James Corden being presented as the happy-go-lucky fellow. And then we find out that he behaves appallingly in restaurants. Similarly with Ellen DeGeneres. Allegedly. Allegedly. But I think, it did, in fact, he, he may have acknowledged. But the sticks, doesn't it? And then the Ellen DeGeneres, for example, as well, who would have presented herself as a lovely, warm person and then turns out her treats her staff uh, terribly bad as well. So there is that kind of contradiction and hypocrisy. The question for Lizzo is, will she be able to maintain it? I think she's a fantastic artist. The problem will be now whether her behaviour is as performative as the accusers are saying it is. Okay, let's move on. There's going to be so many people leaving our airports this weekend to get away to holidays in the sun. And yet there are suggestions that global warming could mean that Ireland becomes a tourist, well, if not quite a hot spot, a popular spot. Could it really breed? Are people going to want to come for the wet weather in an August weekend like we're going to endure? What's that saying that we learned in school? It was every cloud has a silver lining. So the cloud being, you know, the climate crisis and everybody being up in arms about that. And the silver lining apparently for, for Ireland is that everybody is going to flock here. So, yeah, apparently as as the temperatures go up, people won't want to go to Spain, to Greece, because it's just going to be too hot. So they're going to come to us, the Little Rock in the in the Atlantic Ocean, where we will increase a little bit, but Sorry, not too why, much. Why would they come here for the weather? For the prices? Well, well, for the weather, of course, yes. And, uh, well, potentially the prices, who knows. Um, but they're, they're essentially saying that this, uh, it's the EU's Joint Research Centre. And they're saying that if temperatures here in Ireland increase by an average of four degrees Celsius, that we'll get an increase of about 10% in tourists. But those figures, to be honest, are a little bit ridiculous. Who says we're going to get an increase in tourists? Sure, if, if the Gulf Stream gets turned off, as we've been warmed, warned, we'll actually get cooler and wetter. Well, well this is it. And then if the, the, the general uh, temperature of the Earth increases by anywhere near 4%, it's going to be a nightmare situation. The whole world will be burning. But, yeah. but totally, but they are. But uh, the, again, another study is saying that we're actually going to increase by only 1.6 degrees by 2050. So these figures are a little bit all over the place in terms of, of um, you know, how much we're, we're going to go up or not. But apparently, though, it'll be us, it'll be the UK, it'll be Germany, Denmark, Netherlands, Finland, all places which are not necessarily really known for their for their sunshine. So yeah, but it, and it is interesting that like, there's a fascinating book called uh, Nomad Century written by Guy Vince, where it looked at the or the temperature increasing by in around four degrees over the next century. And that what will happen is migration is going to move from towards the poles and that essentially countries like Canada and Russia that have huge swathes of unused territory will begin to be uh, areas for mass migration because in and around the equator it becomes inhabitable. We are on the trend there. Again, we would have seen it in The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells where he talked about minor enough temperature increases having devastating effects on drought, leading to drought, barren uh, harvests and that really we're seeing societies facing this. So these are all coming down the line, Matt. So yes, we might be getting more tourism in the short term, but it's not a good look. Of course, there's also the assumption that everyone wants to go on sort of sun holidays, lie out taking the sun. Mm-hmm. Many people don't, which is why they come to Ireland already, Breda. And surely if we have enough activities for people to do, the weather wouldn't matter. No, and they're coming for the culture. You know, they're coming for the hospitality that we have. They're coming for 
the ability to be able to sort of wander around and look at the scenery around the country. That's the reason why they come. And I mean, at the moment, the streets are flooded with, excuse the pun, uh, with tourists at the moment. A huge amount of of, uh, Americans here at the moment. We've had the wettest July in you know, living memory. Uh, but they're still coming. They have their raincoats and they have their rallies. So people still want to come because it's Ireland. And they can go to things like the Galway races. Tell us about this story <laughs> from the Galway races where high fashion is often on display, but you wouldn't expect somebody to dump a pair of 700 euro shoes. Yeah, it's a Cinderella story, I think we would call it, Matt, where somebody uh, appeared, to to find lose, the owner now. appeared to lose their shoes or Except their shoes ended up. Yeah, the, the shoes ended up in a bin in the Galway races. Uh, Manolo well, give us Blanics, what type of shoes Manolo, Manolo Blanics, which are 660 well euros. Well yes, indeed. And I love the part of the story that it's, it's suggesting that the boyfriend was the person who dumped them in the bin. So the boyfriend's getting the blame. We have yet to discover who the owner of these shoes is, uh, but the, some of the experts in relation to fancy shoes are saying maybe it might have been the first wear of them. They weren't properly broken up, but I can only imagine the fear of the person waking up, realising A, they can't find their shoes, B, that the shoes are probably somewhere in uh, at the Galway races and C, that they ended up in the bin. Preda, these shoes are a high fashion item. They are. Very much desired by many women. Now, they've got big heels on them. Mm -hmm. It could be very easy to go over on the heels. But surely if a heel broke or if they were uncomfortable, you would carry them like so many women do with their shoes rather than dumping them. Absolutely. And I saw photographs of them. The heel didn't break from what I could see. Now, there was a small bit of of mud and grass, obviously, around the bottom of the heel. Uh, But they didn't look like they were wet or, you know... In, a, in such a state that you'd have to get rid of them. These shoes were made famous actually by Sex and the City. I don't know if you ever remember uh, watching that, but Carrie from Sex and the City had dozens of pairs of Manolo Blanics. Um, so she would be absolutely outraged. And she is not far away at the moment. She's actually holidaying up in Donegal at the minute. She's been uh, tweeting and Instagramming from from up there at the moment. So she might go down and rescue them or, or go through the refuse and try, and try and find them. But the other thing is, if you have a pair of heels with you, you always have a pair of flats in your bag. So... I was sort of going, did she take off the shoes and walk barefoot? I doubt it. She must have had had a pair of flats. It's a real throwback to the Celtic Tiger, though, isn't it? When the Galway tent, you know, the Fianna Fáil tent of the Galway races was one of the big talking points of the political year and an outrage at it, the price of admission and the behaviour of the donors to the then party in power. Oh gosh, yeah, I don't think we ever saw such such gratuitous uh, throwing away of shoes uh, even during them. But yeah, you're right. The Galway's races, I think, had had managed to reposition itself from being this kind of height of Celtic Tiger boom to something a bit more community and cultural. Well, now the Manolo Blanics in a bin uh, brings it back perhaps to that. And uh, I love that, that it's Theresa Mannion who's at the centre of it because she was the uh, don't make unnecessary journeys uh, meme previously. So God knows what will come up on, on social media now. Brita Brown and Nance Moss McDermott stay with us because we've lots more in the week trending when we come back after this. Something Brita we spoke about earlier in the week was the idea of calls for health warnings on the packaging for processed food. Coming on the back of individual cigarettes in Canada now having health warnings imprinted on them. Would these be a good idea do you think? Canada is actually leading the way in an awful lot of the the health side of things. So in 2001, they were the first country to put the warnings on actual cigarette packs. So now they're going the next step and becoming the first country to actually put um, health warnings on each individual cigarette. So when you take the cigarette now out of the pack, you're going to see sayings like poison in every puff. So the the reason why they're doing this is obviously to try and deter uh, younger people from smoking. They have a a bit of an issue with... with, um, in Canada in terms of the amount of 
cancer, you know, smoking related cancers there. So they're really trying to, to decrease on that. Um, will it work? I think it I'd like to think it would. Now, especially if they're aiming the younger audience. My only issue with the with the older smokers is that if you take a cigarette out and if you don't have your reading glasses on, I don't think you're actually going to be able to read what's on each on the side of each cigarette. Um but they're also I think it I think it could work. I would like to think it would work. But what about the processed food on because there are some suggestions, actually, if you look at the figures, processed food could be an even bigger killer than tobacco or alcohol. Yeah, because of the high sugar content, high mm. fat content, high salt content, for example, uh, that they quite can be calorie dense as well, so that they're not particularly healthy and that any of the vitamins and the good stuff within them has tended to get sucked out of them in the processing uh, in the processing process to, to use such a phrase. So there is that challenge around it. In relation to the question of whether health uh, warnings make a difference I think in part that they do a little bit but it is a combination of a whole host of things. Like if you go back to the cigarette example and, pl- and apply it to food or to alcohol, it tends to come with an element of education that people know what is healthy and what is not. It tends to come with an increase in taxes so we would have seen that with cigarettes. There can be advertising bans which we would have seen with cigarettes we're seeing a bit with alcohol then are the for example public health awareness campaigns that inform people about the dangers of or what in uh, food would healthy eating look like and then you restrict what people can do which we would have seen with smoking where really it has become an unsociable action that people can do wrapped around that then you have health packets or health warnings so it's not just simply the health warning there has to be a whole kind of a whole suite of actions around it so in relation to the food people might go it's a bit any statey, but I think you would have to look and say yes in terms of the specifics of it but there's an education part around it as well on what healthy eating is. Mm. Well yes I know there will be those who will immediately come and say it's nanny statism political correctness, it's woke but the reality is is that an awful lot of these processed food companies have been deliberately selling us really bad food for many years, advertising it heavily and deserve to be taken on. And I went and Googled earlier on what is synthetic foods and what are, you know, processed foods. Synthetic foods are produced in a lab, basically. And that's the bottom line. They don't come out of the soil and they don't come from animals. They're produced in a lab. They're artificial. So therefore, you have to say to yourself, why are we eating these things? Um, Now, I know there's an issue. Well, you're opening up a can of worms here because an awful lot of environmentalists are now suggesting that instead of eating meat from animals, we should be eating lab-produced meat because it'll be better for the environment. But you would have concerns, would you, about eating that because of how it might be processed and what might be eaten? Well, totally. It? I mean, we've eaten food from the soil and from animals for how many years? So what, you know, obviously we've longer lifespans now because we are probably probably are eating healthier. But I prefer to be eating something that's natural as opposed to something that's artificial. Um, and they're saying that some of the foods involved here are like veggie burgers, vegan cheeses, uh, as you said, lab-grown meat, lab-grown mozzarella. I don't really want to eat any of those and they don't certainly taste or sound very appetising. There's a listener here who says processed food is as big as danger as smoking yet is treated with such nostalgia and joy by the Irish media. I'm not sure where the nostalgia comes in. Oh, I can tell you where I can imagine there's a particular brand of potato crisps, for example, that always gets nostalgic references about Mm. being the best in the world and all the rest of it. it, And think of it, a potato crisp isn't exactly health food, is it? No, and they should be in moderation more than anything. Obviously, eliminate if you can, but in moderation. Otherwise, I think part of the, and this leads into our obesity issue, which is where people who are time-pressed or money-pressed and, you know, children are being fed 
uh, a lot of processed food. That's that's the food learning. Although there's they have often then. a cost issue. Well, yeah, that's exactly that what I'm saying. Where price you look issue, at it yeah. in terms of the education, I think it's clear that whether it's a potato chip, for example, it would be unwise to have your diet dominated by that. But I think more more uh, fundamentally or more importantly, it's where there are cheap food which happens to be processed available, and then when people are on a lower income, for example, they see that as an easier thing to purchase to feed their families. That's where the difficulty comes but in. But then you'll see the likes of Jamie Oliver, who you know is able to come out with with recipes for you know a euro ahead or whatever. So again, you're right; it is about education. It's about nearly teaching. Go back to the basics and teaching people how to cook. There's a f- late British politician called Norman Tebbit mm-hmm. who became famous for telling unemployed people back in the 1980s to get up on their bike and go and find work. Tell us about his uh, 21st century successor Owen, a fellow called Mel Stride. Yeah, Mel Stride is the Work and Pension Secretary in the UK. He's a Conservative and he was at a visit to Deliveroo where he, during an interview he encouraged over 50s that perhaps they could be Deliveroo drivers because he talked about the flexibility that that would give because as we know Deliveroo drivers are members of the gig economy and theoretically the gig economy seems like this amazing thing where people get high flexibility they can work when they want they can work when they're not and then they can get well paid for the gig Is it well paid or is it a form of exploitation? In practice what we tend to find particularly in roles like Deliveroo for example or delivery people generally that actually they become uh, very low paid they have very few workers rights and that actually They're out on their bike in wet weather weather and cold weather all the time. Precisely. And the only flexibility is flexibility not to earn money. It is So it's a very precarious type of role. And so people, A, found it offensive that he was suggesting that, but also B, suggesting that people wouldn't go find work that was perhaps more stable. The UK are having a difficulty at the moment uh, but with, with a particular cohort of 50 to 64 year olds where they're finding them, that they're referring to them as in, economically inactive, as in they don't have a job and they're not looking for a job. And they were trying to encourage people out to work. And interestingly, Britain is the only G7 country with a lower employment rate than before the pandemic, which is again a struggle that they're having. So they're trying to find these initiatives to encourage uh, the population, but particularly that cohort to go out and work. And then obviously the the criticism from many the Labour Party and unions are saying the the suggestion that that cohort should get into the gig economy was unwise. Yeah, what do you mean, Spirit? Because remember about a decade ago, we've been with my family in Florida at Disneyland and been shocked at the age of some of the people working in the car parks mm-hmm. who were clearly in their 70s but who needed to earn money to live. And is this the way we're going that we're going to expect older people to be doing this type of work like getting on delivery bikes? Or could it be that 50-somethings are maybe perhaps in this generation fitter and more agile than they would have been in the past and are well able to do it? It may not be a case they have to. They may actually want to. Um, I think you'll find a lot of uh, some of older people uh, delivery drivers are usually drivers in cars. It's usually the younger people that, that I see on, on the bicycles um, or the electric bikes that are delivering food. I very rarely see anybody um, sort of over over the age of 60, shall we say, doing that. Um, but essentially what they need is, is, you know, the UK needs to be putting better structures in place. But the, the other issue as well, Matt, is that a lot of these takeaway cyclists as well have been protesting here recently mm. um, in relation to violence and attacks against them on the streets. So I'm not sure anybody really wants to put themselves in 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 that situation when they're out all hours of the day and night and all weathers um, delivering food to people's houses. And that leads us back to <laughs> that leads us back to the food aspect we were just having a conversation around earlier on. People just aren't cooking as often as they were. And now that it's so easy to get something delivered to your door, that's feeding as well into 
potentially the obesity problem that I we think have. I may have killed off Norman Tebbett prematurely a listener says he's still very much alive and as extreme as ever in his views at the age of 92 <laughs> best of luck to Norman Isn't Tebbett 92 so. interesting because it was the Lib-, Lib Dems who jumped on that they called it a classic uh, in relation to what Mel Stride said they called it a classic Tory Tebbett-esque manoeuvre which I liked you are wearing a flaming pink jacket here. Does that mean, Breda, that you're on your way from Barbie or off to see Barbie? As all my friends say, you never you never do a, a boring colour, Breda. Um, I haven't seen Barbie. I'm not on my way to see Barbie. I wouldn't mind seeing it, but just have, haven't got around to it. No, I, I bought this jacket before it was trendy to be to be wearing the, pink. The reason I ask it is because apparently men are vulnerable to being dumped if they don't get Barbie's feminist message. Well, apparently, and I haven't seen it, uh, apparently it's now the new relationship test. So if you want to test whether your current relationship is as strong as it should be or you've met somebody new, you bring them or encourage them to come and see the Barbie movie with you and see if they get it. If they get it, I the think that's wise. I think you look Have at you it. Seen it? Oh, I've seen it and I loved it. I'll come back to I'll come back to the movie in a quick second, but I think it's generally wise that couples in a relationship clarify what their worldview on things is, like whether in terms of feminism or the workplace or. Uh, but you can have that equality. conversation without being forced to go well, and see go Barbie. To see the movie. Well, I have to say, I went to see Barbie and I was there with my son and daughter, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Fantastic for a number of reasons. Visually, it was brilliant, really appealing. The soundtrack is fantastic. The acting across the stars and then the support cast was superb the story is relatively straightforward but the message within it around again uh, one could use the term a feminist uh, message but essentially it is saying that like if you you know it's easy to and it's much better for everything to be the same for everybody and I thought it was a fantastic movie and I'd recommend anybody to go see it Um, and it's interesting though when you look at where it's being successful it tends to be successful in western countries where if you look for instance in South Korea it's totally flopped that only 8% of the cinema-going public have gone to see it. And it is thought because South Korea, who have created wonderful content recently, uh, is a particularly patriarchal society. It has the worst gender pay gap in the OECD. And feminist or feminism is like a bad word or a slur there. And that's an interesting contrast, Mm -hmm. particularly given the theme of the movie. But I I thoroughly enjoyed it. thought it was great fun, very entertaining, with a significant message within it. I know you're going to be accused now of being... Ultra woke. But one uh, one woman on social media said she cancelled her date because she had asked him to wear pink to the Barbie movie and he wouldn't. Would you well, wear pink, Owen? I, I, well, given that I use so much masculinity, of course wearing pink wouldn't be an issue for me. <laughs> but I do think the, the, in relation to the wokeness of it, I think it's on a very... Re, re, there is the element where you look and say, objectively within this, it presents a contrast, and not to have any spoilers, between Barbie's world and the real world, which is a very interesting thing to look at. Thank you very much for that. On Tomas McDermott of the Communications Clinic and Breda Brown from Unique Media. The last word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.